Welcome to Utah Talks Climate Podcast, brought to you by Utah Clean Energy. Each episode brings together Utah leaders to get their unique perspective on the impacts and solutions to our climate challenge. Hello, and welcome to the Utah Talks Climate Podcast. My name is Tom Love, and I'm the founder and president of Love Communications, a Salt Lake City-based marketing and communications firm. And I am here today with Sarah Wright, the founder and executive director of one of Utah's leading clean energy and climate nonprofits. Welcome, Sarah. Pleasure to be here, Tom. Thank you. Let's dive in and talk climate change in Utah. Sarah, you founded Utah Clean Energy in 2002, making this your 20-year anniversary. Congratulations to you and your team. But tell us why you started Utah Clean Energy. Sure. I mean, this is a confluence of really three things. One, for those of you that were around back then and really following the California energy crisis, energy was trading for astronomical amounts the birth of my son, he was three, year old, three years old at that time, and me understanding climate change and starting to hear the solutions that were being put forth through the climate um, to the energy crisis. And the big push was just to build more coal plants and to build more transmission. And no one was asking for energy efficiency. No one was asking for clean energy. And I knew that if we just built more coal plants, we would be leaving... Um, a bad situation with respect to the climate for my son and his generation. So I just started volunteering. It wasn't my plan, but so thrilled to, and so proud of Utah Clean Energy right now. That is a fabulous story. How old is your son today? He will be 25 um, next month. Is he proud that mom started Utah Clean Energy? Well, he doesn't really say that, but um, I'm sure he is. And he's working on climate in his own way through the, um, with climate investing and clean tech. So you started probably as a bit of an outlier 20 years ago. Did you feel like you were sort of all alone and, and tilting at windmills and fighting a battle? Or did you have a lot of emotional support and then ultimately financial support? Tell us about that 20-year journey. Sure. I mean, in the beginning, it was all volunteer effort, but there were definitely kindred spirits um, that were cheering me along and helping me learn the ropes of moving forward clean energy policy in a state like Utah. Um, I did go to the Capitol and people would look at me kind of funny when I talked about clean energy solutions and renewables and solar and wind, but um, that's definitely changed over the years. And um, when people ask how I did it, I think um, perseverance and in showing up is really what has led to the success we've seen so far. You probably felt all alone for a number of years for a while, or or um, uh, that you were you know fighting certain battles and 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 maybe not with a lot of support. Were you using the term climate change twenty years ago with folks? How's the evolution of the nomenclature and the vocabulary changed? Yeah, we used it very carefully, and we really pushed in the early years on economic development, on diversification of our energy supply. Energy efficiency has always been the cheapest, cleanest resource available to us. It really wasn't until 
probably um, when President Trump was elected that we completely leaned in, knowing that we needed conservative states like Utah to lead out and be um, a voice for moving forward on climate solutions. Well, and I would imagine you had a lot of challenges that way because Utah is a fossil fuel and oil state, and there is a lot of energy in the eastern part of Utah. And I can't imagine that what you were talking about was really met with a lot of popularity and support. Um, Tell us a little bit about that evolution. How did you create funding for Utah Clean Energy and make it a, a viable, sustainable nonprofit? You know, I think that all the way along, you know, there's always going to be, and often the political leaders are behind the people. And so there were always people um, that supported clean energy solutions. And so we were funded by foundations, individual donations. We have had grants with the Department of Energy since almost the beginning um, to work on solar and wind and efficiency. So um, we're really fortunate that the people of Utah care, that foundations care, and that there are you know, visionary um, groups within and agencies within the government wanting to make sure that we have a future that's healthy. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, very good point. Um, okay, so now we've been into it 20 years. Um, it feels sort of like the discussions are like an ever-expanding universe. It keeps happening. The more it expands, the faster it expands. The faster the discussion has happened. Tell us especially what's been happening uh, since uh, maybe 2016 or 2016 and um, how the discussions have really changed and evolved the last four or five years. Yeah, it's been a pretty um, exciting time, hasn't it, Tom? Um, There are now, one of the things that we did And we worked with you on that as well as one of our steering committee members is to launch the Climate and Clean Air Compact because social science shows that people look to their leaders for what is okay to act on and what is okay to speak about. And so our thought was, let's get the leaders of Utah that we know care uh, about Utahns and care about clean air and, and creating a healthy climate and bring them all together. And now we have 175 leaders that have signed a compact asking to have conversations and move forward productive dialogue on climate solutions. We were able to bring in uh, Tom Friedman to to launch the the program. And now we're moving into, um, I think our third year and um, getting more and more leaders all the time. And, you know, the goal is to to move beyond conversations to impactful solutions. And it's going to take all of us working together to do that. I remember when we launched with uh, then Salt Lake County Mayor Ben McAdams at that event and uh, and about 20 people and 20 signatories. And how fabulous to hear that we have 175 signers of the Climate and Clean Air Compact from all different political persuasions from all different faiths, uh, from from business and nonprofit and representing a fabulous cross-section um, of the state. And that list continues to grow. You keep adding to that list, don't you? We do. And we, um, you know, we welcome other leaders that want to join us. I think there are like, you know, I just know that even though sometimes the political will trails, the people and the leaders are interested in leaving a legacy of clean energy, clean air, and a stable climate. 
What more could you want to do? What more could you want to do? And as Tom Friedman said, it's cheaper to save the planet than it is to kill it. So let's make it an, econ- an economic argument. I remember when we launched that event um, about five years ago with um, Salt Lake County Mayor Ben McAdams. And the purpose of that conference was your goal was really to, to let people know it's okay to say the term climate change. And that there were people who really were afraid to even say that phrase or say that phrase on Capitol Hill or say it in front of certain elected leaders. Um, do you have any specific stories about that where, um, you know, saying the, the phrase climate change or climate crisis was, was an unwelcome intruder into a conversation? Yeah, and, and for some it still is, which is quite surprising. The science is so clear. I don't know if I have any specific examples, and um, I've always been, tr- I try to be unapologetic because the science is clear. And I think that, um, feeding into the fears of some that we can't talk about climate change because of political um, blowback for for lack of a better word. It's I'd rather just lean in and, you know, call the science for what it is. We are facing a crisis and we need to act. And I think that when you did, when you don't talk about climate, it's like the emperor has no clothes. You know, we need to say that the emperor has no clothes if we don't act on climate. Um, and by denying it, um, we're not going to get anywhere or by being or walk, tiptoeing around the subject. So do you find people in your circles today or the, the, the folks that you have to deal with or lobby or advocate with um, still don't believe the science or still deny it and or don't accept it? Is that happening? You know, I think we're, we're beyond that. Now, I think most people accept the science, not all understand the urgency for action. But I think that what they're afraid about is they are afraid to that the actions are going to be harmful to our economy or that certain parts of our economy and there will definitely be transitions. And as we transition away from some of our fossil resources, we need to make sure that all of our communities not just in Utah, but all of our energy producing communities continue to thrive. So um, I think it's more of the fear of change and knowing that it will be uh, a massive change, but it's going to result in cleaner, healthier air, cleaner, healthier ways um, to get around transportation and um, clean and healthy buildings. So it's all all the changes are good, but they're not easy. So sometimes it's easier to um, not want to talk about it at all and not want to acknowledge that we have to change. Is it more urgent today than you thought it was two years ago? Uh, more urgent than I thought it was five years ago, you know, and, and it's harder too. When I started this 20 years ago, we had to cut our emissions 2% per year, which, you know, was a fair amount then, but now it's 15% per year. So, um, because we've waited so long to act, we have to act more quickly. But the good news is, is that renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels. Efficiency has always been cheap. And we have storage. I mean, all the technology is there. So the good news is we can do it. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. It would be hard to live in the state of Utah in the last five years and not say you haven't even witnessed climate change. We witness falling snowpack. Uh, we witness hotter temperatures. We live in hotter temperatures. We witness stronger and greater wildfires in the West. 
and we watch the evaporation and the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake. Even, even uh, um, I think all elected Republican leaders acknowledge the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake due to climate change. What gives you hope, Sarah, that Utah can address this and, and help uh, change the direction on climate change for Utah? You know, you know, the first thing is what I just mentioned is that the technologies are all available and they're all economic. So um, the solutions are there. The second is that we are seeing greater leadership from the business community, the faith communities and um, local governments. And I my hope is that um, the legislature and the governor will also see that this is a win win for Utah and that we can be at the table um, driving solutions in Utah and also in conversations on the federal level, which then impacts the global level, global policies. And finally, I'll just say that um, sometimes when you have a problem, if you make it bigger, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, but that you can help solve it. And when you look at the things we're facing with energy security right now, no one owns the wind, the wind, no one owns the sun. And so if we push forward on climate and clean energy solutions, we're also accelerating energy security. Fabulous points. Um, Utah is an energy state, as we know, has been, it's a big part of our economy. Um, do you think there's an economic argument to be made um, from shifting away from fossil fuels and oil? Uh, to cheaper renewables? Is there economic opportunity? Is there business opportunity uh, for Utah companies and Utah entrepreneurs to take the climate crisis and um, uh, and make it an economic solution, not just an environmental solution? You know, definitely we have a number of solar developers in the state. Um, AES is one of the biggest solar developers um, in the country, and they're stationed right here. We have local smaller developers that are developing projects. Um, property tax then goes to the communities where these projects are developed. So there's also um, not just the developers making money, but also the, um, the counties can earn property tax if we structure that correctly. And efficient building, there's over 30,000 jobs in the energy efficiency sector in Utah. And you might hear about the thousand jobs in coal, but 30,000 jobs in energy efficiency. So we could ramp that up even higher. And, and we don't think of those as energy jobs because they're helping us save energy, but it's an energy sector. What a fabulous statistic. Um, rumor has it, that you were in the midst of a game changer for Utah Clean Energy uh, and the entire organization. And some might call it a legacy project. Uh, and this really sets up Utah Clean Energy for uh, its future work in our community. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about this new project and pull the curtains back on it and, and tell us what your hope is? Yeah, well, I'm excited to. So Utah Clean Energy for many years has worked out of a small um, rental property in the Salt Lake City Avenues area. And um, we've been looking for a space that could be a showcase for energy efficiency, for net zero, to really show how to take a, how to take a building and turn it into a net zero um, clean energy, climate-friendly showcase. And a foundation called the Alternative Visions Fund 
enabled us to um, purchase a small building downtown. Um, we're working with an architect right now. We're in the middle of the, uh, a capital campaign for the building and it will be um, a climate friendly showcase with, the, with solar and storage, um, super efficient, all electric, no pollution from this building. And, um, you know, it'll be a place that we can bring people in to to learn how to do it themselves you know many people don't think about it but 40 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions are from the built environment our homes and buildings and i think 80 percent of the buildings that will be here in 2050 have already been built so for us to take an existing building and basically an energy hog and turn it into a net zero showcase um is going to hope lead the way for more buildings like this to come. Now that sounds that's a that's a fabulous point because um, what I've learned in working with you about this is how much of of CO two emission comes from buildings that are already built, and I was unaware of that. We tend to think about everything that's coming in the future and how we need to change and new construction and lead platinum construction, et cetera, et cetera. But what you just said is eighty percent of the buildings that will be around here around here in Salt Lake City or along the Wasatch Front and back by 2050 are already built and they contribute 40% of the CO2 emission. So if we can address existing buildings um, and, and, and turn them into net zero, we can make a major, major impact. And that is, a, to me, um, a real tangible thing that building owners and developers could be doing up and down the Wasatch Front. So it sounds like you're going to be building a living laboratory as an example to all of these other developers that could do that. So these are things that that businesses and people and developers could start doing today. Is that correct? Yeah, we're not doing, it's none of it's rocket science. It's about insulating the walls and making sure you don't have leaks, switching to all electric heating and cooling, um, and, you know, putting solar on the rooftops to the extent you're able to. And we'll put in storage, which will also give us resiliency in our building. So if um, for some reason the power goes down, we'll be able to keep our building at temperature and keep some of our computers running and, um, so it's it's really the way of the future, but it's all available right now. That's one of the things that excites me because often when we have presentations or discussions on on climate change or the climate crisis in Utah, you get to the end of the presentation and go, "Okay, what can I do? What can I do as an individual? What can I do as a homeowner? What can I do um, as, as an individual?" Um, and it gets a little difficult to define. And and what gives me hope about all of this is. Now, this is a real living example of what building owners can do up and down the Wasatch Front. And it's not that hard. And the technology is there. And it's not that expensive. What's the timing on the building? And when would you hope to have it online? Well, um, we hope to start construction in September. And so, and construction could take nine to 12 months, even though it's an existing building. Um, we will be going up a floor to take advantage of, you know, as much square footage as we can get into sure. a small um, city lot. Um, and so we're hopefully, you know, next year we can this time we can be in the building and giving tours. Oh, that would be that would be absolutely fabulous. Um, what an opportunity. 
Well, congratulations on that and good luck on the capital campaign. And if you are out there listening to this podcast and want to make a contribution to bring this building to a reality, you are more than welcome to contact Sarah at Utah Clean Energy and she will gladly accept your donation and and put you on the donor wall if that donation is large enough. Isn't that right? That is right. And thank you, Tom, for that pitch. We're excited <laughs> about this space. It's it's really important work, and I'm excited for people to see it and see it come online. Uh, any last thoughts to listeners out there in Utah about the climate crisis in our state uh, and the opportunity and the role we're playing as a red state in America to talk about the climate crisis? Yeah, I mean, climate does isn't a red problem or a blue problem, and it's really about it's it's about all of us. It's about our future and our kids' future, and about creating a, a world full of economic opportunities. Sarah, would you say Utah is at the forefront of red states in America talking about this issue and working toward, towards solving it? You know, Utah with the climate and clean air compact and the conversations that we're having in the state, not just we, Utah Clean Energy, but, you know, a number of people on climate solutions. I think we are a leader and we are so grateful with Congressman Curtis and the Conservative Climate Caucus. I have a lot of hope um, that as we move forward, that that group will be able to help drive policy at the federal level as well. So really grateful that we are moving forward and still a long way to go, but we can do it. We can do it and a long way to go, but it never would have happened and never would have started if Utah, if, if Sarah Wright had not started Utah Clean Energy 20 years ago. So we are grateful for that, Sarah, and your work and dedicating your life to this very important project. So um, that is it for this edition of Utah Talks Climate. Thank you all for listening and we will see you next time. Thanks, Sarah Wright. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Utah Talks Climate. Check back for more episodes next month. And in the meantime, stay in the know on all things clean energy and climate by signing up for Utah Clean Energy's newsletter at utahcleanenergy.org.